We are in the second part of our series uh, where we are thinking about Christianity and the environment. Uh, And what we argued last week and continue to say this week is that really a biblically formed worldview gives Christians an even, even greater motivation to act for the good of the environment, even more so than that of a very concerned greenie. Now, I use the term greenie in the kind of contemporary sense. It's a badge of honour. It's a good thing. It's a compliment to the person who takes uh, seriously choices and and acts uh, positively for the health of planet Earth. So being greenie is a good thing. But our aim here is to connect the good desires of the greenie with a desire, with care for our environment in a Christian worldview. And as I say, I think that there's even greater motivation when those two come together. <coughs> Excuse me. Last week, we looked back at Genesis, you'll remember, at our creation mandate. We're made in the image of God, and we have a role as his representatives to glorify him in the way that we care for all of creation. In a sense, we rule on God's behalf, accountable to him. Okay, So we've been looking back at Genesis and God's commissioning and commands there. This week, we look forward. We look forward to the future where we see how that future will shape our present. Now, that's the thing that we all do, isn't it? Where we have the, uh, what we have uh, in mind for the future shapes what we do in the present. We know that too, right? Here's a general principle, um, which this guy here is kind of following up on. Um, it's bitterly cold, it's blizzarding, but this guy walks out his front door in his shorts and T-shirt because he heard that there was a heat wave coming that day. Now, hopefully he you know, rakes up to that before he gets too far away from home, but it's because he has a different view of the future that he acts as he does. Okay? And we'd all do the same thing, right? We, um, uh, hopefully we're better informed than this guy, but we act based on our future expectations, right? That's why people study for exams. You know, we expect that the exam really will happen on the day that the teacher said that it would. That's why we save money for retirement. It's why we buy food in advance of dinner time. We anticipate the future and act appropriately in the present. Okay? So in that same way, with our future impacting our present, Christians are to act now for the sake of a future reality. And the future that we are looking forward to as Christians is the new creation, which we read about in Revelation 21. Uh, John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her. So here is this vision um, in the apocalyptic style, which we are quite familiar with now at St. Andrews, and it describes this future reality where heaven comes to earth as the culmination, if you will, of this new creation. Heaven, by definition, the personal dwelling place of God, his, his home, his throne, the place where he rules without opposition. Heaven comes to earth as the defining characteristic of the new creation. God lives with us. We are his people. He is our God. And the old order of things has passed away. Now, there are elements of continuity 
and discontinuity between creation as we experience it now and as it will be experienced then. The dominant description in the Bible of the link between the two is that of renewal. What will life look like for us in the new creation? I think the best indicator we've got from the Bible, at least, is Jesus in his post-resurrection body. Here is, if anything, here is the new creation breaking into this order uh, in a remarkable way, after Jesus is resurrected. Now, there are very real differences between Jesus' body and everybody else's body, quite clearly, at that, at that time. But there is much continuity, isn't there? Jesus is physical. He eats food. He has breakfast on the beach with the twelve, and they go walking along the beach, and they, and they have a discussion together. They ask questions. There's conversations. There is something about the resurrected body of Jesus that gives us a clue about what life will be like at his return. Uh, We hear that when Jesus returns, we shall be like him, says uh, 1 John. So there's some clues there. We had a lot of questions on the text this morning at 10 o'clock about this. Well, what will it really be like and how much continuity is there? How much destruction is there of the old before the new comes? I'll answer that online. That'll take another 10 minutes. It's a tricky one. But as we think about the continuity between the present world and the new creation, the first thing and the most important thing really to remember is that Jesus is Lord of both the present and the future. And Jesus is Lord of all in the present and the future. So Paul writes to the Colossians, the Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and through him God reconciled to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Colossians tells us Jesus is Lord, not just of Christians, but Jesus is Lord of all creation. Jesus is Lord in the spiritual realm. Jesus is Lord in the physical realm. And this, at very least, should motivate us Christians to actively care for everything that belongs to Jesus, including oceans and forests, and ecosystems and land systems and rivers, they all exist for his glory. And so since all of creation belongs to Jesus, we, above all others, should be at the forefront of looking after it. Doesn't that make sense? But not only is the future marked by Jesus' lordship, but the Bible has much also to say about our future as well. Uh, hopefully you still have the Romans passage. You know, maybe you kept your thumb in the, in the Bible when Romans was read. I hope you have. But if you haven't, flip open to Romans 8 because we want to look in a little more detail there. Because in Romans 8 we read that even now God's spirit-filled children cry, Abba, Dad, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. Now if we're children, we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, 
if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. So at this moment, in the present, as God's children, we have an inheritance and it is waiting for us. This inheritance, quite remarkably, is the same as Jesus' inheritance and he's sharing it with us. We are co-heirs with him. Quite remarkable. Then Paul goes on to say in verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. And you see what's happening here. Paul, assumes, uh, Paul assumes that there is a basic underlying bond between humanity and the rest of creation. Okay? He's thinking about Genesis 1 and then he moves to Genesis 3 where he sees that along with us at the fall, the environment, our environment, was somehow put under God's curse. That is, creation that we see around us with us is fallen, less than perfect, it is frustrated and it's decaying. It's not allowed to flourish as it was intended. Instead, it produces thistles and thorns, harmful things, as well as all of the good things, food to eat and so forth. Working the land is hard, it is unsympathetic and it is challenging. And so we are waiting, hoping, doesn't that talk about life that we know now as we look around our creation? I mean, we, we, we see that, wow, it's, it's pretty much the perfect environment for human flourishing and yet at the same time it's dangerous, is it not? I mean, we need water for drinking and, and rain for our crops and yet sometimes we have too much water and it floods very destructively. We need the warmth of the sun to survive and yet too much sun is going to kill us. We need a very narrow band of temperatures in which to exist. And it seems that for all of our great technology, we can do nothing to fix global warming. As good as God is and as good as his creation is, it sort of doesn't seem to be working all the time for the good of humanity. And we seem helpless to be able to change this. And so we and creation are waiting for the children of God to be revealed. That is, we are waiting for the return of Jesus in his glory. And while we wait, our bodies and all of creation actually tends to decay. We get sick and we grow old and we become frail. And the waiting and the frustration is very often filled with pain of all kinds. But one day it will be over. Our adoption as God's heirs will be complete. And our bodies will be set free from decay. The dead will be resurrected and given new bodies. And so all creation will be renewed. It's the same creation, but it is no longer subject to the curse of sin or to the effects of the fall. Both we and it will be liberated to glory. What a great day that will be. 
as we think about this large-scale meta-narrative of the Bible, as we do in Romans 8 here, the biggest question that seems to arise for us is why? Why would God do it that way? God could have created absolutely any creation at all. Why bother with all of this pain and waiting and frustration? Why couldn't God kind of given us a shortcut to glory? Wouldn't that have been nicer instead of all of the mess of sin and the fall? Well, the best answer that seems to be not only embedded in this part of the text but actually throughout Scripture is that God always acts to maximise his own glory. That's the principle. His glory is displayed in everything that he's made and in his perfect wisdom, he's decided that his glory would be better displayed in fallen men and women turning to Jesus and freely embracing his rule. His glory is actually magnified when humanity does what it was created to do to display the rule of God over everything that he has made. Caring for creation, those who are made in his image. So in this very broad sweep of the Bible that sits before us in the text of Romans here, from creation to sin to the cross and then new creation, that sweep is what gives God greatest glory. Lots of questions came in on that one this morning too, so we'll follow that up. All of this looking forward to the new creation, to this freedom and this glory of the children of God, as it says in verse 21, is an exercise in hope. And the reason I've kind of compressed everything to date in the sermon is because I want to talk about hope. Have a look with me again at verses 22 to 25, where this word hope is used a lot And you'll notice that it is used as both a noun and a verb. Have a look at it. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope... That is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So this experience that we share of groaning, expectant waiting, which is shared with all of creation, this experience is actually the one that we were saved to in hope, in this state of affairs, in this reality of being a child of God but not yet experiencing all that that will entail. And so we have this hope, this future thing, which does belong to us, but not quite yet. That's what our hope is. We talk about that thing as a future thing. That's our hope. That's hope as a noun. But have you noticed how in the second half of verse 24, hope shifts from being a noun to being a verb. Who hopes for what they already have? Hope is now an action. Something that the Christian does. Do you hope Christianly? It's sometimes said that faith is like a muscle 
And you have to use your faith. It has to be put into action and so that it is strengthened. Faith is the present tense and it reaches back looking at God's promises. That's what faith does. Hope is forward-facing faith. Hope is the future tense. Hope needs to be expressed in actions for it to grow strong. It's a muscle, just like faith, but you've got to actively do something in hope. That's why looking after God's creation now is so good because it actually gives concrete expression to our hope. It's a new creation action that you put into practice now. Our future reaches back to the present, if you like, to shape our thinking and our behavior. That's what we always do, right? We always act based on what we know is going to happen in the future. We glorify God by caring for his creation now as we shall in eternity. In a biblical sense, we hope forward. Not with crossed fingers, you know, sort of wishing, wondering, but in confidence on the basis of God's faithfulness to his promises. So hope acts now for the future that God promises. Okay, We have this incredible destiny as Christians, but strangely, we don't often talk about hope. Sadly, I think many Christians are kind of living with a childish idea that, you know, when Jesus returns and his promises are fulfilled, we'll be floating on clouds and strumming harps and it'll be pretty boring. When our humanity is liberated into the glorious freedom of God's new creation, we will live a full life, a fully human life, perfected as it was always meant to be. We will celebrate, we will rejoice together in the direct presence of God. We will also share in the rule of Jesus over all of creation. We will judge angels. I have no idea what that means, but Paul says that's what's going to happen. When this, this shared rule is actually the culmination of our being created in the image of God, this is the reality that was always intended for Adam and Eve. Intelligent beings who have freely chosen to live under the rule of Jesus, redeemed from sin, made holy, and now perfectly mirroring the glory of God. That's our future. That's what we are destined for. That's, and that's just the faintest outline that Scripture gives us. And I want you to know that it's okay to be excited by that. Does it sound any good? Obviously not. Does it sound any good? I hope so. This is fantastic. It's wonderful that God would have in mind this for us. This is what you hang on to when you face the tough stuff in life. Hope, actively hoping, is what gets you through when it's difficult. I want you to imagine for a moment that you are the heir to the most beautiful farm. Let's say it's on the north coast because I like it there, in the hinterland. The distant ocean views are spectacular. Green rolling hills provide abundant food for your animals and your stock. There are rich forests on the land and they're filled with all kinds of animals. Let's say that there's a stream running through it, crystal clear water. It's full of fish. 
Barramundi probably. Uh, just for now, you are a station hand on the property. And uh, you have a little cabin in the corner of the, of the property uh, from where you work. And one day, everything will be yours. But not yet. How much do you care about your work on the farm? How much will you care if you see it getting polluted, if you see bad farming practices? You're going to act now, surely, on the basis of your inheritance in the future. That's the narrative of the New Testament, right? Creation, cross, new creation. And it's our present practice of creation care that brings that future to the present and gives tangible expression to our hope. This is how you strengthen your hope by acting in the present. It's like a muscle, as we've said. This is your future for which the Spirit yearns inside you. So I could draw together, we've, we've spoken about a lot, this incredibly large picture, we can see why the Christian person actually has a greater motivation to look after their environment now than the person who doesn't have a biblically formed worldview. So hopefully through these two weeks, your own convictions have been strengthened uh, about how we are to look after the environment that God's given us. And as I said last week, uh, God is honoured when we change the things that we can change, for which we're responsible. We know that not many of us can influence the, uh, you know, the foreign policy or foreign countries' energy policies or anything like that. But we do have the ability to change some things in the places where we have leadership or authority or influence. Think about your chain of uh, su- your supply chains, renewable resources. Okay? So that's the kind of micro stuff that you can do. But as we turn now our faith forward in hope to the future, I wonder if there's something more that we could do. I'm wondering, are there any innovators among us? Is there someone here who can see how to fix a problem and help us do something about it? There may be some of us here who are not innovators, but we can actually back the people who are, and give them the resources that they need. Let me give you an example of this. I want to tell you the story of an accountant friend of mine. Uh, you know, so you're not thinking innovator already, I know. But uh, my accountant friend, she retired. And uh, she did a you know, world trip, as you do, after you retire. And she got, to, uh, she got to Kenya, where she was going to go visit some game parks. And she came into Nairobi, and she encountered the Mathare slum. Um, It's an urban slum. This is the centre of the city of Nairobi. And amongst other problems that she saw there, she saw an incredible need for proper sanitation. There's about 500 to 800,000 people who live in an area about the size of Roseville. No one knows actually how many people do live there. But there are tin and cardboard shanties that have no toilets, no water, One study counted that there are 232 people for every public toilet, which you can guess are not well maintained. The health risks of open sewage flowing down the streets are tremendous. You can see the sewer runs down the middle of the street there. 
And so our retired accountant decided that she would fund a micro-business subscription toilet. There it is. She didn't invent the idea, but she did significantly improve it. For the cost of the initial investment, where she actually had to buy this little plot of land and there's a toilet there and there's some shower facilities as well, for that cost, the business of a subscription toilet generated enough income to sustain two families and they operated this pay-per-month bathroom facility. Hygienic toilet, good bathroom facilities. After a year, the business paid for itself. So she said, great, I'll do it again. Now she has two toilets. And she um, is amazed at the impact. Now the impact doesn't solve all of the problems of Mathare, but they are a little bit, small, tiny bit better. There is a little bit more human dignity there. Here is uh, Pastor Ezekiel. He now runs a church and a school right in the centre of that slum. He's also the guy who oversees the two families who operate the toilets. I tell you this story to stretch our thinking beyond our own neighbourhood. Ezekiel's church is called the Centre of Hope and Transformation. There it is. Uh, He's a a friend of mine and we keep in touch every month uh, encouraging each other. I ask us, what could we do? We've got some smart people. We're well-resourced. I'm wondering what we could do as a church. Or maybe your small group could come up with something. I'm not really, you know, I, I don't have the answers to this, but I think you guys do. What might we do to exercise our hope in the amazing future that God has given us? Will you pray with me? Our God and Father, We do groan inwardly as we see the mess that our world is in and we we know that we are part of the problem and we long for the day when you will set us free. But we thank you that we can also be used by you to see change and we pray that you would please guide and lead us that you would please stimulate our hope, that we would be able to exercise that to see transformation. So, Lord, we pray that you might guide us in that as we seek to live on the basis of all that you've promised. In Jesus' name, amen.